Welcome to tape number one of Renewal of the Covenants, National and Solemn League, A Confession of Sins, An Engagement to Duties, and a Testimony by Alexander Craighead. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to our reading of Renewal of the Covenants by Alexander Craighead, which we pray you find to be a great blessing and which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. On November 11, 1743, at Middle Octorera, Pennsylvania, Reformed Presbyterians under the leadership of Reverend Alexander Craighead renewed the National Covenant and the Solemn League and Covenant. They did so because they realized the colonies in America were His Majesty's dominions as referred to by the Westminster Assembly, the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, and the Parliament of Scotland. And they also realized that they were a constituted part of the all posterity included in the Solemn League and Covenant. Therefore, they were bound to own and to renew these covenants as God provided the occasion to do so in His wonderful providence. Quote, there never was any nation but the nation of the Jews in this realm. Note that these Reformed Presbyterians understood the colonies to be within the realm of Great Britain and therefore bound by the national covenants of Great Britain that were so highly honored as for the whole nation to enter into covenant with the Lord. And yet, alas, how little does the generality of this nation think of this unspeakable dignity? How many slight it? Yea, how many look upon our national covenants as a yoke of bondage, as if it were a bondage to come under the most solemn vows imaginable, to appear for God in his cause and against his enemies, that which our renowned forefathers gloried in as their greatest honor and happiness, we in this corrupt age do grievously despise, which discovers what base spirits we are of, that delight more in the league with the avowed enemies of God's glory than with himself. And thus our holy covenants, national and solemn league, discover themselves to be perpetual and of constant obligation upon this realm, including the colonies of America. The following was a quote from the Covenanted Reformation Defended by Greg Barrow. Now I'd like to read a brief summary of Renewal of the Covenants by Alexander Craighead, written by Reg Barrow, president of SWRB reading just a few of the uh, excerpts. Uh, 
Renewal of the Covenants is a fascinating covenanter document. This rare book contains much that is exceedingly valuable in the section titled The Declaration, Protestation, and Testimony of a Suffering Remnant of the Anti-Popish, Anti-Lutheran, Anti-Prelatic, Anti-Erastian, Anti-Latitudinarian, Anti-Sectarian, True Presbyterian Church of Christ in America is well worth the price of the book itself. With W.M. Glasgow, we set this book forth, quote, trusting that his work will be of historical value to all covenanters and interesting to all other readers, end quote, with the hope of enkindling a flame of love for the glorious principles of the Word of God and arousing an interest in the great work of national reformation, end quote. And now to our reading of Renewal of the Covenants, National and Solemn League, A Confession of Sins, An Engagement to Duties, and a Testimony, as they were carried on at Middle Octorera in Pennsylvania, November 11, 1743, together with an introductory preface. Psalm 76, verse 11, Vow and pay unto the Lord your God. Jeremiah 50, verse 5, Come, and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. The Editor's Introduction To the Calvinistic system of principles and the Presbyterian form of government, this nation indebted for its civil independence and republican polity. John Calvin and John Knox are the real founders of American liberties. Their teachings, plainly deducible from the Word of God, were disseminated by a persecuted remnant of the Church of Scotland and were generally incorporated in the structure of American independence. John Knox asserts in his first confession of faith, quote, the right and duty of the people to resist the tyranny of their rulers, end quote. The General Assembly of the Church of Scotland in 1649 declared, quote, first, that as magistrates in their power are ordained of God, so are they in the exercise thereof not to walk after their own will, but according to the law of equity and righteousness. A boundless and unlimited power is to be acknowledged in no king or magistrate. Second, that there is a mutual obligation betwixt the king and his people. As both of them are tied to God, so each of them is tied the one to the other for the performance of mutual and reciprocal duties. Third, that arbitrary government and unlimited power are the foundations of all the corruptions in church and state. End quote. The three kingdoms were voluntarily, yet sacredly, bound by the Solemn League and Covenant and to the maintenance of the Reformation in church and state. But these were causelessly broken. The headship of Christ and the supremacy of the divine law were now disowned. Following this apostasy came the killing times when thousands of the best citizens of Scotland gave up their lives for the defense of the truth and their adherence to the attainments of the Reformation. Many of the persecuted covenanters were banished to foreign lands. Others fled to America as a welcome asylum, bringing their blood-bought principles with them. They settled principally along the Atlantic coast from New Jersey to South Carolina and in the eastern part of Pennsylvania. They formed themselves into praying societies and did not affiliate with other worshiping assemblies. Those in eastern Pennsylvania, especially in the counties of Lancaster, York, Chester, Dauphin, Cumberland, and Franklin established a system of correspondences and general meetings for prayer and conference. 
Some of the Covenanters, however, joined in the organization of the Presbyterian Church in this country, although it was somewhat irregularly constituted and had no fixed standards. It adhered to the Westminster Confession of Faith so far as it, its great principles are concerned and passed the Adopting Act by the Synod in 1729. Yet it left each one to decide for himself what were the essential doctrines therein set forth. The Presbyterian Church did not regard the Solemn League and Covenant as a binding force and refused to renew the covenants. Latitudinarian views and loose practices soon sprang up. Laxness in admitting members and examining candidates for the ministry led many to seriously consider their relation and responsibility to this organization. In 1741, the New Brunswick Party withdrew from the Synod of Pennsylvania. Among these were a number of ministers from the Newcastle and Donegal Presbyteries. A notable minister for the latter presbytery was the Reverend Alexander Craighead of Middle Octorera, Pennsylvania. In 1742, Mr. Craighead withdrew after giving his reasons from this party, holding them as unfaithful to their standards and accepted principles. A protracted pamphlet was ensued. Excuse me, a protracted pamphlet war ensued. Accusations and vindications, and these reaffirmed, were the order of the day. In 1742, Mr. Craighead published a pamphlet in which he set forth his views on civil government and the Christian's duty towards a covenant-breaking nation. He held that the church, as well as the part of the British nation, should renew the covenants. He insisted that this neglect was the cause of the decline in religion and the commotions in society. Reverend Samuel Blair replied to Craighead, and Reverend Gilbert Tennant lamented his censoriousness. Thomas Cookson, Esquire, one of the Majesty's Justices of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, appeared before the Synod in the name of the Governor and laid Craighead's pamphlet on the civil government before them. The Synod disavowed any responsibility for such sentiments and agreed that, quote, that it was full of treason, sedition, and distraction, end quote, and declared, quote, that they detest any principles or practices that would encourage dissatisfaction with the civil government, British, that they were under, end quote. From this it is clear where the Presbyterian Church stood at this period, at least, with reference to civil independence, and it was left for the Covenanters to proclaim the principles and initiate the work. Mr. Craighead, with a part of his congregation, quote, joined the cause of the strict Cameronians in the vicinity and wrote to the Reformed Presbytery of Scotland for ministerial assistance. Footnote. The following was from Webster's History of the Presbyterian Church, pages 161, 186, 202, and 435. Back to the text. In November 1743, 100 years after the signing of the Solemn League and Covenant, Mr. Craighead gathered together all the Covenanters in eastern Pennsylvania at Middle Octorera, Lancaster County, and, after the dispensation of the Lord's Supper, led them in the renewing of the covenants. Here they declared with uplifted swords their independence of an ecclesiastical body that strangely upheld Erastian prelacy and also declared their separation from the crown which had so impiously violated covenant engagements on both sides of the Atlantic. 
The proceedings of this interesting occasion are given in the following pages by those who participated in the transactions. The proceedings were first printed in Philadelphia in 1744 and reprinted in 1748, evidently by Benjamin Franklin, who editorially in the Pennsylvania Gazette refers to the matter. For seven years, Mr. Craighead labored among the Covenanter societies, but failing to receive assistance from Scotland, he removed in 1749 to Virginia, thence to Mecklenburg County, North Carolina. There he became identified with the Presbytery in connection with the Presbyterian Church. Being thoroughly imbued, however, with the principles of the Scotch Covenanters, Mr. Craighead taught them and his people and his people, excuse me, Mr. Craig had taught them to his people around Charlotte. They in turn formulated them into the first Declaration of Independence emitted at Charlotte, North Carolina, May 1775. According to a reliable author, Wheeler's Reminiscence, page 278, Thomas Jefferson says in his autobiography that when he was engaged in preparing the National Declaration of Independence that he and his colleagues searched everywhere for formulas and that the printed proceedings of Octorera as well as the Mecklenburg Declaration were before him and that he freely used ideas therein contained. It is difficult to determine, therefore, the real author of the American independence. Undoubtedly, the principles of the Covenanters at, at Octorera in 1743, the sentiments of the Presbyterians at Charlotte in 1775, and the declaration submitted by Jefferson in 1776 contain one and the same great principles, honor to whom honor is due. In August 1751, the Reverend John Cuthbertson came from Scotland and took up the work relinquished by Mr. Craighead two years before. In 1773, Mr. Cuthbertson was joined by Reverends Alexander Dobbin and Matthew Lynn, and these ministers constituted the first Reformed Presbytery in America at Paxton, Pennsylvania, March 10, 1774. During the Revolutionary War, the hands and hearts of these Covenanters were in the struggle for independence. They were simply carrying out their principles. No less than 13 Covenanters among the societies in eastern Pennsylvania were officers in the Continental Army, and Mr. Cuthbertson frequently preached in the camps of the soldiers. In South Carolina, led by their valiant and patriotic pastor, the Reverend William Martin, the Covenanters were on one side only. Lord Cornwallis and Mr. Martin imprisoned at Rocky Mount for over six months for preaching his principles and inciting the people to throw off the British yoke. In July 1777, according to the order, and after an appropriate sermon by Reverend Cuthbertson, the Covenanters in eastern Pennsylvania swore fidelity to the cause of the colonists. These considered it right and duty to resist the tyrannical authority of an unscrupulous king and oppressive government and especially so when that authority had persecuted their fathers and martyred their ancestry in the maintenance of the truth, which the same authority had solemnly swore to uphold. Hence, the Declaration of American Independence was justifiable. But when the newly born nation ignored the god of battles, rejected the authority of the prince of the kings of the earth, and refused to administer the government in accordance with the requirements of the divine law, 
then the same loyal covenanters, faithful to their principles and consistent with their history through all the struggles of the centuries, dissented from the Constitution of the United States and are justifiable in the continuance of disposition of political dissent so long as the government retains its character of political atheism. We may rightfully declare our independence of wicked men and rebellious nations, but we cannot declare our independence of God and set up a government regardless of his authority without incurring his wrath and suffering from his desolating judgments. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. At the time of the renewal of the covenants in 1743, there were at least seven regularly organized covenanter societies in eastern Pennsylvania, in each of which were ruling elders as follows. Middle Octorera, Lancaster County, with Elder Samuel Irvin, Joseph Kerr, excuse me, Josiah Kerr, and Robert Langhead. Piqua, Lancaster County, with Elders Neil McNaughton, William Ramsey, and Joseph Walker. Muddy Run, Lancaster County, with Elders Joseph Bell and John Brownlee. Lower Chanceford, York County, with Elders Samuel Hawthorne and Samuel Jackson. Pinkston, Dauphin County, with Elders James Brown, James Mitchell, and Andrew Smith. Rocky Spring, Franklin County, with Elders Christopher Houston and James Wilson. Rock Creek, Adams County, with Elders Robert McCulloch and Thomas Wilson. No doubt many of these elders and a large number of the people were present at Middle Octorera and entered into the proceedings of the solemn covenanting occasion. We are indebted to the Reverend Dr. T. W. J. Wiley of Philadelphia for the loan of his valuable publication and to Miss Anna E. Wilson of the same city for its preparation for the press. We have endeavored to reproduce the original as it is spelled punctuated, capitalized, and italicized, trusting that this work will be of historical value to all covenanters and interesting to all other readers, we give it circulation in the hope of enkindling a flame of love for the glorious principles of the Word of God and arousing an interest in the great work of national reformation. Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, June 1, 1895, W.M. Glasgow. Glasgow, excuse me. The preface to the reader. Candid reader, it is no less than astonishing and amazing condescension in the everlasting God to stoop so low as ever to propose to enter into a covenant relation with mankind who might justly have demanded of us obedience to his commands by his absolute power over us without any promise of favor to us. Although in this God's condescension is ineffable, yet such is the stupidity and impiety of the most of the world that they deprive themselves of so high honor as to enter into covenant with the Lord, despising and rejecting this unspeakable dignity and great happiness that Scotland, England, and Ireland, and some in America have been honored with to dedicate and surrender themselves to the Lord by a most voluntary free and deliberate choice to come under the bond of the most sacred and solemn oath in the most religious manner, devoting their all to Christ Jesus, his interest and honor, the advancement of his kingdom and glory, and the reformation of his church by the Covenants National and Solemn League. Although we do not suppose them to be the same with the covenant of grace, 
yet we look upon them as another obligation binding us to all the duties of a Christian life as well to the duties which tend to a public reformation of the nation of which the covenant of grace is the spring and foundation. It is necessary in this preface to give you some account of the reasons for our withdrawing and to the necessity of renewing the covenants of the manner of it and lastly remarks upon some pamphlets emitted. First, we suppose it to be very necessary to give an account of the reasons of our withdrawing from those called Presbyterians in these parts because we are frequently branded with the odious character of schismatics, promoters of division and factions, enemies to the work of grace in the land and such like and this merely because we cannot continue to join with them in their errors as we did formerly. Our reasons are such as these. First, because it may be said that if ever there was any foundation of a Presbyterian church in these parts, it is very corrupt and unsound in its very foundation, which appears from two things. One, from their acts, as in particular by an act of the whole synod in the year 1729, which is like a constituting act as appears by itself, and an act of the same synod, 1734, and in the year 1736 of the same synod. Again, in the act of 1741, by a part of the synod, met in the name of Hanover, excuse me, met in the name of one. These acts all agree with the establishment of the crown in the house of Hanover. Two, from there being no alteration in the constitution of the church in these parts for the better since the revolution at this time, it is well known that the church was founded upon an Erastian prelacy, which by the true Presbyterian religion is abjured. This is evident from all the above-mentioned acts as also from that self-contradicting and erroneous pamphlet entitled A Declaration of the Presbyteries of New Brunswick and Newcastle printed in the year 1743. Our second reason for withdrawing or receding from these pretended Presbyterians, which we were in communion with, is because of their unscriptural terms of church communion, to wit, they extend to all that they believe have grace. This is so commonly known to be their term of communion that we suppose that none will deny, and if they do, it can easily be proved from their print, doctrine, and practice. In this term of communion, there are these evils. First, in making their judgment the rule of their admittance of persons into the church and not the word of God, which is a strange rule. For either their judgment must be infallible of persons, or they are liable to a mistake. And if so, of one, why not of all? And thus it ceases to be a rule which ought to be tolerated. Secondly, this term of communion agrees not with the word of God, which tells us in Matthew 8, verses 29 and 30, in Matthew 22, 9, 10, and 11, and in Luke 13, 26, Then they shall begin to say, We have eaten and drunken in, the presence, in thy presence, and thou hast taught us in the street. Thirdly, it is an opening a door for error to creep into the church, for it cannot be denied, but there may be some pious persons in the Church of England amongst the Baptists and Independents. Now, to admit such into church communion, while they maintain their principles, would be to let in a flood of errors into the church, and would render it a babel rather than an orderly church. 
A third reason for our withdrawing is because the most part of ministers and people do in plain words deny the covenant to be formally binding upon us, and thus they may as well deny them altogether, for if they have no form they can be no covenants. That they do deny them thus is intimated in the act of presbytery at middle Octorera, April 14, 1742. It is further known by many sermons and positive assertions. For the rest of our reasons of withdrawing from the pretended Presbyterians in these parts, we refer the reader to a book entitled The Plain Reasons for Presbyterians Dissenting from the Revolution Church by Andrew Clarkson, printed 1731, and to the Informatory Vindication, head forth, page 74, in both which this affair is spoken of and clearly decided. Head number two. The necessity of renewing the covenants is to be spoken of, one, negatively. The renewing of the covenants national and solemn league is not essentially an absolute necessary to salvation. No, no, for if so, then the renewing or not renewing of them would be the very hinge upon which salvation or damnation would turn, which God forbid any should imagine, or that all that renew these covenants shall be saved and all that do not should perish. This would be grievous impiety indeed to maintain any such thing, and our doleful experience plainly proves that several several persons which have renewed them appear to be strangers to converting grace, and undoubtedly some that have not are not so. But this we are persuaded of, that every person that faithfully renews these holy covenants and lives agreeable unto them in heart and life will not miss of eternal happiness. Again, neither does this necessity of renewing of the covenants flow from any coercive or restraining power in our day, either from the civil magistrate or ecclesiastical authority of this corrupt church, that all neglectors and despisers of this great duty would lay themselves open to the lash of civil and ecclesiastical judicatories. Alas for it, that we have no constraint this way, but to the reserve of this to wit, to continue in the breach of these holy covenants. There is authority enough for this, such as it is, although we don't question if these two were put in execution for this end, but there would be multitudes then for renewing of those holy covenants. The mouths of many have confirmed this, so that if it be a duty to renew them, the fear of man keeps them from it. And if it be a sin to do it, yet the civil and ecclesiastical authorities would persuade them to it. And this undeniably proves whether it be the fear of God or the, of man that prevails with them. Some think it should be very awful that the civil magistrate should, as such, use any power to prevail with persons of, of this great duty of renewing these holy covenants or punish them for their obstinacy therein. And not a few make this their only objection against a covenanted reformation. Now, in order to remove this grand objection, let people consider, one, that the general part of mankind looks upon it as no injury to men for the civil magistrate to make laws against thieving, robbing, uncleanness, cursing and swearing, lying and Sabbath-breaking, and the like, and to punish those that are guilty of such crimes, although they may pretend necessity or conscience in committing some of these crimes. And how strange it is that any should imagine 
that it is a fault for civil rulers to make laws for persons, yea, nations, for covenanting with the Lord. And when they are broken for the renewing of them and obliging people to enter into them, ensure if the former be a duty of civil rulers, which few can go under the name of a Presbyterian will deny, then certainly the latter cannot be a sin in civil rulers, for covenanting, even national, is a plain duty from the word of God, as keeping the Sabbath holy is, and as awful the threatening denounced against covenant breakers as against Sabbath breakers, they being both grievous sins. Unless that magistrates do use their power for the preventing of errors and for the encouragement of vital holiness in principle and in practice, they are not such as the word of God speaks of in Isaiah 49, verse 23. And kings shall be thy nursing fathers, their queens thy nursing mothers. Romans 8, 3. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. 2. Let people consider that godly rulers, as Asa, did punish for such crimes. Second Chronicles 15, verses 12 and 13. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul, that whosoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death, whether small or great, whether man or woman. Verse 16. And also concerning Makkah, the mother of Asa, the king, he removed her from being queen because she had made an idol in a grove and Asa cut down her idol and stamped it and burnt it in the brook Kidron. Second Chronicles 34, 30, 31, 32, and 33. Thus you may see that it would be our great mercy if we had such rulers as would constrain us to our duties of every kind, especially now when ministers and people are so exceedingly backward therein. There are few in this declining age think hard to be constrained by the ruler to do evil, but to be constrained to do good seems hard with many because they have not been much exercised this way. And this makes good the old proverb that custom becomes like second nature. And hence, we have ground to suppose that we kings to rule in righteousness and princes to decree justice, few would be satisfied with them. Again, the renewing of these covenants is not necessary by way of merit, for when we have done all we can, we are unprofitable servants. Luke 17, verse 10. 2. Positively, the necessity of renewing these holy covenants appears, first, or one, from its being a commanded duty for covenant breakers to return from their backsliding. Jeremiah 3, 14. 14 Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you. 2. From this, that covenant breakers are ranked by the Spirit of God amongst the vilest of sinners. Romans 1, 31. Certainly, if the breach of covenant is amongst the worst of sins, the continuance in the breach can never lessen the sin, but greatly aggravate the guilt of it. We know of no way to forsake this sin without renewing of these covenants, because the promise of mercy is to such as confess and forsake their sins. Proverbs 28, verse 13. How a person that is guilty of the breach of these covenants can forsake that sin without a right renewing of them is strange. But some will say, We will fly to Christ for pardon for this sin. Well, but how wilt thou fly to Christ with this sin in thy bosom and a resolution to continue in it? 
If so, thou comest to Christ with a lie in thy right hand and mockest God. This ends side one. Please turn the tape over and continue listening on side two. Thank you. For the psalmist tells us in Psalm 68:18, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. You will say, they are national covenants, and therefore what can we do? The nation will not join us, and we will not join a nation. Answer, though you are not a nation, yet certainly you are a part, though never so small. And as such, there is some duty lieth upon you to renew these covenants, yea, even as much duty as on any in your station. For in the covenants, every individual person swears for himself in his station to endeavor to prosecute the end and design of the covenant. None can hinder another from doing his duty unless by constraint. Neither is there any part within the book of God that excuseth any person from doing his duty, though there should not a man join with him therein. We are expressly commanded not to follow a multitude to do evil. Exodus 23, verse 2. Elijah was faithful when he knew of no other prophet. So was Paul and many others. Tis dreadful that people should be so blinded as to follow the course of this world and yet look for salvation. 3. The necessity of renewing the covenant appears from the awful judgments which God threatens and pours out upon persons for their breach of covenants. Leviticus 26, verse 15, almost to the end. Deuteronomy 31, verses 20 and 21. 4. The necessity of renewing the covenants appears both from Scripture precedent and from the precedents or precedents of our ancestors. For as instance, the covenant made with Israel at Horeb was renewed at the plains of Moab, Moab by Moses, Deuteronomy 29, verses 1, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, by Joshua 24, verse 25, by Asa, 2 Chronicles 15, 13, and 14, and by Jehoiada, 2 Kings 11, verse 17, by Hezekiah, 2 Chronicles 29, verse 10, by Josiah, 2 Kings 23, verse 2 and 3, by Ezra, Ezra 10, verse 3, by Nehemiah, verse, or chapter 9, Nehemiah 9, verse 38. Some imagine that these were all new covenants, but if any unbiased person would rightly consider these scriptures, they might easily find that they are but all one covenant in substance by their all-engaging people mostly to the same duties, to wit, to serve the only true God agreeable to his commands and to oppose all kinds of idolatry. Tis true there were some circumstantial differences in them, yet not so as altereth the nature of the covenants, so that they properly can be termed new so that they properly can be termed new covenants. As for instance, the putting away of the strange wives and children is a circumstantial difference. Again, we have the precedence of our renowned ancestors renewing of our holy covenants, both before and after the established Reformation, as at Edinburgh, 1557, at Perth, 1559, at Leith, 1560, at Eyre, 1562, and again at Lanrick and Lisnahego, 1666, and 1689 
in Scotland again, 1648 and 49, again at Douglas, 1712, by a small number, were renewed. And five, the necessity of renewing the covenants appears farther from their being nationally broken as they are national covenants, and their funeral piles erected by ungodly rulers in the chief cities of the kingdom were all imaginable ignominy and contempt. And thus they have leaned a long time or lied a long time buried and the most part of people either hating the very name of them or at least being ashamed faithfully to appear for them and the duties contained in them so that it, it is time that all such as are true lovers of Zion's prosperity should use their utmost endeavors for the reviving and renewing of them. 6. The necessity of the renewing of those covenants is further evident by the different bonds of union between England and Scotland at this time, and the time of the purest reformation. In the time of the purest reformation, the covenants, national and solemn league, were the very bonds of union between them, as is evident from the covenants themselves, and from many acts of Parliament establishing the same. But now the bond of union is that incorporating union made in the year 1707, which are as diametrically opposite the one to the other as fire to water and light to darkness. For by the one persons are bound to extirpate prelacy, by the other they are bound to maintain and uphold prelacy, as is evident by the union itself. So that surely when there is such opposition made to our holy covenants, it is our unquestionable duty to appear for them by a renewal of our solemn engagements to them, 7. Our own deep perjury, apostasy, and backsliding from the whole of a true covenanted reformation loudly call for our renewal, together with the sins of the age and place where we live. 8. Some of us earnestly longing to partake of the holy ordinance of the Lord's Supper, we looked upon it as very necessary to renew the covenants as a very useful and necessary part of preparation for the holy ordinance to us that never had renewal, renewed them before and were lying under the heinous guilt of perjury which we knew no other method how we or any of the nation can free ourselves from without a solemn renewal of them and faithfully to endeavor to walk agreeable to them in heart and life. Head number three. The third thing to be spoken to is a narration of the manner in which this great work was carried on. The aforesaid motives and reasons, together with many others which might be advanced, excited and prevailed with us to attempt this solemn and tremendous duty. Although we have just ground to believe the covenants never were publicly renewed by such a poor, unskillful, and small handful of people as we are, since they were perfidiously broken, none of us having ever seen the like done before, so that we have just reason to wonder and be surprised, to praise and magnify the eternal and glorious God, that he was not provoked to make some remarkable breach among us for our sins therein. But when, instead of the execution of justice, the holy God was pleased, through Jesus Christ his dear Son, to shine upon several of our souls with a reconciled countenance and by shedding abroad his matchless love in our hearts and souls in a plentiful measure. Oh, what ground we have continually to adore and bless the Lord Jehovah for his goodness to us. 
Warning being given thus considerable time before the renewal of our design and several days set apart for humiliation and prayer, both in our private societies and in public, in order to implore divine aid and direction in this awful work, on Thursday the 10th of November, the people being gathered, we began with prayer to Almighty God, and that day the covenants and confession of sins and, and engagements to duties and the testimony were publicly read, not only for the clear understanding of these things, but also that we might have the more suitable, deep, and abiding impression of the holiness and sublimity of that great transaction we were to be employed in. After reading and singing a sermon, excuse me, after reading and singing a sermon was preached from these words, John 11:56, What think ye that he will not come up to the feast? From these words, first, it was inquired, the king of feast. Second, it was inquired what was implied in seeking of Jesus at the feast. Thirdly, how a person should know when Jesus comes up unto the feast. Fourthly, why persons should inquire whether Jesus comes up to the feast. Fifthly, the application. As to the first, it was answered that there were two kinds of feasts. To the body, as Esther 1, 3, he made a feast unto all his princes and servants. This kind of feast was not insisted on. Two, it was showed that there was a soul feast. Psalm 63, verse 5, my soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and with fatness. It was discovered that sometimes the soul was feasted. One, in secret prayer as Hannah, for Samuel 1, 13 and 18. Now Hannah, she spake in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. So the woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. Two, family prayer as Cornelius, Acts 10, 30 and 31. Three, in the house of God, Psalm 36, verse 8. They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house. 4. At sacramental occasions, Song of Solomon, 2, verse 4. He brought me up to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. 5. In meditation, Psalm 63, verse 6. When I remember thee upon my bed, and meditate on thee in thy night watches. Secondly, it was inquired what is involved or implied in seeking of Jesus at the feast. It was answered that it implied, one, a feeling sense of want of him. Matthew 9:12. They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. Two, earnest desire to find him. Psalm 42, verse 1 and 2. Three, the diligent use of all means appointed by God for the obtain obtaining of him. Song of Solomon 3, verses 1, 2, and 3. 4. A constancy in seeking of him till we find him. Song of Solomon 3, verse 4. 5. A love to him. Song of Solomon 5, 16. Yea, he is altogether lovely. 6. An earnest care to keep up communion with him. Song of Solomon 3, verse 4. I held him and would not let him go. Thirdly, it was inquired how a person should know when Jesus comes up to the feast, to which it was answered, 1. When Jesus comes up to the feast, he perfumes it with his gracious presence. Song of Solomon, 1, verse 13. A bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved unto me. He shall lie all night betwixt my breast. 2. 
His presence makes the feast sweet and pleasant unto the souls of his children, whereas when he is absent it is dry, jejune, and tasteless, and hence is that prayer, Song of Solomon 4.16, Awake, O north wind, and come thou south, blow upon my garden that the spices thereof may flow out. 3. He revives the soul when he is present, Song of Solomon 1, verse 12. Psalm 62, verse 5. 4. Where he is present, he kindles a flame of love in the heart to himself. Luke 24, verse 32. And they said one to another, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us by the way? 5. He feeds the soul of his children when he is present. Song of Solomon 5, verse 1. Eat, O friends, drink, yea, drink abundantly, O beloved. 6. Where Jesus is present, there is a mutual communion between him and believers. Revelation 3, verse 20. I will come in to him and sup with him and he with me. Fourthly, it was inquired why we should seek, why we should seek for Jesus at the feast. It was answered, 1. Because he is Lord and Master of all gospel feasts. Matthew 22, 13 and 14. There is still a want or lack while the Master of the feast is absent. 2. Because he hath promised his presence at the feasts. Matthew 28, verse 20. And lo, I am with you always. 3. Because he is the sum and substance of the feast. John 6.35 I am the bread of life. The best of ordinances without Christ is but like husk, incapable to feed a gracious soul. 4. We should seek to know whether Jesus is at the feast because he commands us to do so. Psalm 27, verse 8 When thou sayest, Seek ye my face. 5. Because if Jesus be not at the feast, no real good can be had at it. John 15, verse 5. Fifthly, in the application, among other uses, there was also a use of examination, in which was discovered our necessity of examining ourselves whether Jesus was come up, or whether to come up at that feast, inasmuch as we looked upon the solemn renewal of our holy covenants, a necessary part to us of our preparation for partaking of that holy ordinance of the Lord's Supper, and that so a double obligation lay upon us to be at much pains to know whether Jesus would come up to us and to know whether Jesus would come up to this feast because both the renewal of the covenant and the participation of the Lord's Supper are a very solemn and near approach unto God and if Jesus be not with us therein no good can be had to our souls but dreadful guilt contracted for marks to know whether Jesus will come unto this feast, we were to have recourse unto these that were mentioned in the doctrinal part of the discourse, and many other marks of the presence of Jesus. The discourse was ended with an exhortation agreeable to the text, to wit, to be very earnest and diligent in inquiring whether Jesus would come up to the feast, and that from the consideration, one, of our absolute necessity of his gracious presence, in order to be accepted in our assays to serve him. Two, from the consideration of the great benefits of the gracious presence of Jesus with us. Three, that it could be no true feast to our souls without him. On Friday, the 11th of November, after prayer and reading and singing some part of a psalm, a sermon was preached from these words, Jeremiah 50, verse 5. 
Come and let us join ourselves unto the Lord in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. After speaking to the context and explaining the text, the doctrine was mentioned to wit that it is the duty of a Christian people to excite one another to join themselves unto the Lord in a perpetual covenant not to be forgotten. First, covenanting was spoken of. Second, it was inquired whether all covenants or any be perpetual. Third, why some covenants should not be forgotten. Fourth, prove that it is the duty of a Christian people to excite one another to covenanting. Fifth, apply the whole. First, covenanting was spoken of. A covenant is a contract or bargain between two parties by which each party is bound and obliged to fulfill whatever the conditions of the covenant are, if lawful. And hence it is that covenant breakers are ranked among the most vile sinners. Romans 1, 29, 30, and 31. Covenants are of two kinds, civil and religious. 1. Civil covenants are such as that of Abraham and Abimelech, Genesis 21, 21 verse 32, which was personal, and that of Joshua and the princes of Israel with the Gibeonites, Joshua 9, verse 15, which was national. 2. Religious covenants, of which there are diverse, not to mention the covenant of redemption made between the persons in the glorious trinity, nor the covenant of works made between God and man, nor the covenant of grace made in and through Jesus Christ with the elect as his seed. Again, there are religious covenants, one personal as that of David, Second Samuel 23, verse 5, Although my house be not, with so, be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ardent in all things and sure. This covenanting is a personal dedication of a person, soul, and body to the Lord and his service, in which the person enters into a solemn covenant vow and engagement to take God the Father for his reconciled Father through Jesus Christ, God the Son for his alone Savior, Prophet, Priest, and King, and God the Holy Spirit for his alone Sanctifier, Comforter, and Director in all his ways to endeavor to give an universal obedience unto the whole revealed will of God in all his behavior. This kind of covenanting is so necessary that we suppose few adult Christians are ignorant of it, if any, and not a few have written their covenants between God and their own souls. There seems to be a family covenanting spoken of in Scripture, Joshua 24, verse 15, But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Tis a wonderful mercy when the whole family enters into covenant with God and are in any measure steadfast therein. There is a national covenanting spoken of in the word of God, as in our text and context, the children of Judah and the children of Israel joining together, Second Chronicles 15, 13, and 14, Second Kings 11, 17, Second Chronicles 29, verse 10, Second Chronicles 20, excuse me, Second Kings 23 verses 2 and 3, and Nehemiah, Nehemiah 9:38. There never was any nation but the nation of the Jews and this realm that were so highly honored as for the whole nation to enter into covenant with the Lord. And yet, alas, how little does the generality of this nation think of this unspeakable dignity? How many slight it? Yea, how many look upon our national covenants as a yoke of bondage, as if it were a bondage to come under the most solemn vows imaginable, 
to appear to appear for God and his cause and against his enemies that which our renowned forefathers gloried in as their highest honor and happiness we in this corrupt age do grievously despise which discovers what base spirits we are of that delight more to be in league with the avowed enemies of God's glory than with himself the second thing proposed was to inquire whether all or any covenants be perpetual answer one negatively all covenants are not perpetual for there may and undoubtedly have been covenants made for a limited time as well as bargains or other kinds of contracts which may be made for a day a week or a year or forever or so many years as agreed upon in the bargain contract or covenant two positively some covenants are perpetual as for instance the covenant spoken of in our text this word perpetual being one of the terms of the covenant it cannot be but perpetual yet the word is not to be taken here according to its utmost extent to wit never to have an end for there neither is nor can be any national covenant in this sense perpetual because there is no nation without end so that by a perpetual national covenant we are to understand the covenant to remain in, in force while the nation remains a nation or any of them these are necessary to be in covenants to make them perpetual their nature or terms their agreeableness to the word of God without either of which they cannot be so one because if there if the terms or of the nature of the covenant be limited to a short time it cannot exceed its limits because the time of its binding force is expired and it continues no longer two if the covenant be not agreeable unto the word of God it cannot be perpetual because no covenant contract or bargain can bind us to sin forever sin is a breach of the divine law first John 3 verse 4 sin is the transgression of the law and the wages of sin is death Romans 6 23 and this is evident because the law of men must be subject to the law of God and that from the subordination of causes and thus our holy covenants national and solemn league discover themselves to be perpetual and of constant obligation upon this realm one by their being national in their own nature as is plain from themselves and so had the power of the nation to confirm them two by the terms of them as appears from several sentences in the covenants one that the national towards the latter end of it which is as follows quote and finally being convinced in our minds and confessing with our mouths that the present and succeeding generations in this land are bound to keep the aforesaid national oath and subscription inviolable end quote again quote we therefore faithfully promise for ourselves our followers and all under us both in public and in our particular families and personal carriage to endeavor to keep ourselves end quote two from their first paragraph in the in the solemn league and covenant which is as follows quote that we and our posterity after us may as brethren live in faith and love and that the Lord may delight to dwell in the midst of us end quote three that these covenants are perpetual and of a constant binding power over this realm is further evident by their agreeableness to the holy word of God that they are so few who call themselves Presbyterians deny yea we know of none that ever did or can prove them to be otherwise 
The third thing proposed was to show why some covenants ought not to be forgotten. One, because some covenants, as has been said, are of a perpetual nature and should not be forgotten, it being at least a step toward, if not the actual breach, of a covenant to forget it. And hence the Israelites are warned in Deuteronomy 4, verse 23, Take heed unto yourself, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make you a graven image. 2. Because it is a great loss for a person to forget his covenant, for then he forgets his covenant obligations that he lies under, which is very fearful, and thus prevents himself of keeping the covenant, and lays himself under that dreadful guilt of covenant breaking, of which, see Romans 1, 29 and 30. 3. Because it is a great benefit rightly to remember our holy covenants, tis a means to make us watchful both to endeavor to do the duties the covenants require and shun the sins which they forbid. 4. Because forgetting our covenants made with God is a great dishonor to Him and no less than a forgetting of the Lord in some measure with whom the covenants are made. Psalm 50, verse 22. Now consider this, ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. The fourth thing proposed was to prove that it is the duty of a Christian people to excite one another to enter into a covenant with the Lord, covenanting being a duty in itself. 1. All the scriptures that require us to be helpful to our brethren in spiritual things prove this doctrine. 2. The practice of the church and the people of God proves it. Jeremiah 50, verses 4 and 5. In those days and in that time, saith the Lord, the children of Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah, together going and weeping. They shall go and seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way of Zion, way to Zion with their faces thitherward, saying, Come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. We are commanded to walk in the footsteps of the flock. Song of Solomon 1 verse 8. 3. Our own backwardness to covenant with the Lord proves the great need that we have to excite one another unto this great duty. We are such dull and lazy creatures that we have much need of something to quicken us to our duty. This ends tape number 1 of Renewal of the Covenants by Alexander Craighead. Please go to the next tape in the series and continue listening. Thank you. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com phone at 780-450-3730, fax 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. 
This book, Renewal of the Covenants by Alexander Craighead, is also available from Stillwater Revival Books in softcover format at a discount in our A to Z author listings. Please don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation and Puritan Bookshelf CD sets if you visit our website at swrb.com as these CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed books.